And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully you guys had a great, long weekend. Uh, yeah, we were off on Monday. Uh, sorry, guys. It was Memorial Day. I figured that, uh, you know, half you guys were busy and you wouldn't be listening anyway. And Hey, man, it was a holiday. I really wanted to go fishing, so I went fishing. Caught some nice catfish. Like, one of them was uh, like 15, 16 pounds, something like that. It was a monster. I've got a freezer full of uh, catfish meat right now. I'm ready for some fish fries. I have a, a, a bag of uh, frozen white bass, bag of catfish. Man, you guys got to come over to the house, man. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have some fish fries coming up. It's going to be delicious. Anyway, anyway, wow. Uh, yeah, aside from fishing, yes, I did have a good weekend. Hopefully you guys had a great one as well. I was joined today by the great Jim Garrity from National Review. Uh, we, we talked about, we covered a lot of ground, covered a lot of ground on the podcast today. Um, we talked about the uh, EU elections. Uh, we talked about the political turmoil going on right now over in the UK. Um, we talked about Joe Biden's chances in the uh, the the Democratic 2020 field and uh, a bunch of other stuff. And we covered Jim's new book, Between Two Scorpions, which is available for pre-order right now on Amazon. Go to Amazon and pre-order it. Um, and the book is uh, officially released on June 11th. Uh, I can't wait to read it. It's, it sounds awesome. It sounds like a lot of fun. Um, I don't read nearly enough fiction, so I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, yeah. So before I get to Jim, everybody, follow us on Twitter at NoGimmicksPod. And if you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. And if you're on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate it. All right. Without further ado, here's my chat with Jim Garrity. <laughs> All right, guys, we're here with senior political correspondent for National Review, co-host of the Three Martini Lunch podcast, and author of the brand new book coming out June 11th, Between Two Scorpions, Mr. Jim Garrity. Jim, thanks for taking the time, man. Brady, thank you very much for having me on your program. Absolutely. It's been a while. I think it's been a couple years. I think you were actually one of my first guests like two years ago after I first launched the podcast. So yeah, it's uh, it's been a while, but uh, a lot to get to as always today. Um, I'm actually really glad that, that you're here. You've written a lot about uh, international politics, and I know virtually nothing about international politics, so you can educate both me and the audience. I want to start across the pond um, first here uh, with the EU elections over the weekend. Uh, and the political turmoil generally in the UK. But let's start with the EU uh, parliamentary elections. Right-wing nationalist types have won a ton of seats across Europe in countries like England, Italy, France, Germany, and others. And the far-left Green Party has picked up some seats as well. And the traditional center-right, center-left guys were just taken behind the woodshed. I mean, they really Mm -hmm. took one on the chin over the weekend. And we can break it down point by point, but overall, your thoughts of what we saw over the weekend. Sure. Uh, Well, I was lucky enough a couple weeks ago to be able to travel to Vienna, Austria. Uh, I was presenting to some groups out there, and and, uh, there was about two, three weeks uh, away from the elections, and all over Vienna you had campaign posters for all the different parties. And, uh, you know, I don't really speak that much German, but you could understand a lot of, you know, hope for the future and that kind of uh, slogans and stuff like that. The different parties, the different styles. And so I asked my my host, I said, is this... uh, 
how big a deal is this out here? And I said, well, you know, most of the time it's not really that big a deal. If you feel like you haven't heard much about EU elections uh, in the past couple of cycles, first of all, it's a, it only happens every five years. So it's a pretty long stretch in between elections. Um, but the second thing is that this is not as big a deal to your average, certainly to the average Austrian and to a lot of average Europeans. Um, the EU is seen as far away in Brussels. Oh, by the way, I find out when I was over there. Um, the EU meets three weeks of the month in Brussels, and then they go across the border into Strasbourg, France for one week. And I guess this is one way for them to not be seen as always stuck in Brussels all the time. But oh, by the way, it costs a couple, like a hundred million dollars for them to operate in two cities uh, and to move every couple of, you know, have three weeks in one in one city, one week in another city, just for the sake of geographic diversity. There. <laughs> Classic um, bureaucrat behavior right there. It is, right? And I, I, the idea is, I guess, that this makes them more... It probably was the French that insisted that when they set it up. But uh, right. this couple of the Austrians were griping about it as being this giant waste. Um, and I think this is kind of also a little bit of Brexit fallout. Um, that, you know, obviously there was a big shock. The reverberations are still going throughout the continent. And I think a lot of countries are saying, okay, well, wait a second. Why are we in the EU? What are we getting out of this? Is it uh, Are the benefits worth the the trade-offs and the, the fact that we don't always get to uh, set trade policies and decisions like this and it's a you know it, it, the good news is brexit made the eu a lot more interesting to people a lot more important to people um the bad news for the eu is that a whole bunch of people are finding reasons to say hey you know what we don't like this deal uh and we want these parties that are either more skeptical of it or want to bring much more sweeping changes uh to what had been something of a, a fairly stable consensus for a lot of years right right and uh you know i most of the audience probably knows this, but uh, I, I just for anybody that that isn't aware, I just want to point out. I've said this before. I, obviously, a lot of these these uh, right wingers in Europe that get elected that are called conservatives, or that mm. Amer the American press calls conservatives, they they're really nationalists. You know, conservatives in Europe, even in England, typically aren't what we would consider a conservative. They're not talking much about shrinking the size and scope of yeah. government, and cutting yeah. taxes. You know, they are nationalists, and I'm not a nationalist nationalism is kind of scary you know i think patriotism is a much mm. better way to go than 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 nationalism um but i can absolutely understand why voters across europe would graduate gravitate towards nationalism right now for instance a disturbing uh <laughs> report over the weekend the german government was urging their jewish citizens to not wear yarmulkes in public right i mean that's just mm. very creepy in germany of all places obviously with their history uh, in dealing with the jews um, but, you know, so they, they've let in millions and millions of migrants, migrants, a lot of which from the Middle East, and mm -hmm. the anti-Semitic violence is so frequent, so prevalent, that they're now telling Jews to pretend not to be Jews when they're in public. So, like, with something that yeah. extreme, something that ridiculous, I can sympathize with German voters wanting to go in, you know, pull a complete 180 and, and go in a completely different direction. I completely sympathize with with people that are voting for these nationalist candidates right now. Yeah, one of the, we had the interesting conversations over there was people say, well, why does the United States only have two major uh, political parties? And I would kind of look at what they were having between their center-right parties and their far-right parties. And it doesn't you know, the, the tone of the arguments and the disagreements they're having didn't strike me as all that different than the arguments you would see between, for lack of a better term, establishment Republicans and, and like you know the Trumpier style grassroots. Um, the fights between the British UK conservatives and UKIP, although apparently UKIP just really in these last cycle elections uh, uh, plummeted down. Uh, they're kind of being replaced by a new Brexit party. Uh, Nigel Farage is talking up uh, about that. So they're, they're, but the interesting is, so when you see all these different parties in these European countries in this parliamentary system, 
it's not that different from the different factions we see within the two major parties here in the United States. The difference is that they're just obviously different organizations and it's a parliamentary system. Everybody elects and then very rarely does anybody win a full majority in a, uh, in a national election. And then you have to try to put together some sort of ad hoc coalition. And that's where you get some really awkward uh, combinations there. Austria was a terrific example of this. And in fact, they just kind of uh, uh, deposed their prime minister. He's hoping to do better in fall elections. Uh, but the gist there was that they had a center-right party, which was not into this blood and soil uh, uh, philosophy and kind of the scary stuff. And then there was a far-right, uh, appropriately or inappropriately named Freedom Party, uh, who kept saying things like, oh, these migrants are like rats <laughs> and insects. Oh, and all the oh, kind gosh. of stuff that make us break out in hives and say, Ugh! Um, and you, this, you know, for a bunch of reasons, among them being a rather embarrassing video of one of the far-right party leaders, um, they basically... the, the, the the relationship became untenable uh, and the hopes of the center right party is hoping that in the fall elections, they'll elect a much bigger majority and they won't have to make a, uh, this, you know, strange bedfellows of a, of a governing coalition later this year. Just a side note. Mm-hmm. Every time I get frustrated with our two party system, I, I look at Europe and, and other places, Israel and, and other, other Western countries and say, thank God we don't have a parliamentary system. Like yeah. you know, in, in 2016, half the country, lost their ever-loving minds because their preferred candidate lost. Imagine if, uh, you know, if a party won with 27% of the vote. Yeah, in European elections very often, you have election night. You know how many seats everybody got. And then you wait a few weeks as everybody negotiates and horse trades and figures out who gets what cabinet post to try to put together a majority. Now, we had, you know, a lot of House elections that were uh, resolved a couple of days later, a couple of weeks later. I guess in, in California, they even had a few that were like a month later. Um, and I, I don't know about you, Brady. I, I like knowing who won on election night. Yeah, I'm, I'm a like, big fan no, of you know, that. I want to get to bed. <laughs> I want to know, you know, let, let, bing, bang, boom, let's get this resolved. Um, but that, you know, that kind of straight. I mean, I suppose you could argue that, that you know, is a encourages consensus, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, in all likelihood, you end up with some awkward partnerships in which, uh uh, the parties don't really agree on which direction they want to go in, uh, and then you wonder why the government can't seem to get anything done, even in a parliamentary system. Right. I mean, as as two guys that cover the news uh, and live in Eastern Standard Time, I, we're both huge fans of finding out who wins as early as possible <laughs> so we can go to bed. Um, but let's talk about England a little bit. Theresa May is out as Prime Minister of Britain after she failed to deliver on Brexit. Uh, Boris Johnson, the, the uh, former London mayor, and I believe he was... Uh, their version of Secretary of State, essentially, something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. is, yeah, he was foreign minister that, for a while, yeah. Foreign minister, right. Uh, that's how much I know about uh, UK politics. <laughs> but uh, he's the betting favorite at this point to become the new prime minister. I don't know enough to have an opinion one way or the other on Theresa May or Boris Johnson. I, I, I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to UK politics. But, look, from where I'm sitting, if I were in the in England and I voted for something as important as, or at least perceived to be as important as gaining back my nation's sovereignty, and my leaders refused to get it done, I'd be pissed too. You know, I, I mm-hmm. would, I'd be pissed too. And I don't know enough about Nigel Farage to form an opinion one way or the other. He says some things I agree with. Says some goofy stuff I don't agree with. I don't I don't know enough about him one way or the other. But if I were a Brexit voter, which I, I'm sure I, I probably would have been if I if I were a British citizen. Um, I'd be upset, too, and I probably would want Theresa May gone, too. So, like, the same with these Europeans, you know, voting for these nationalist guys who may or may not have ties to racism or may or may not 
actually just hate immigrants or something like that. I, I, I can still understand it. I, I don't need to be a nationalist. I don't need to support Nigel Farage or anything. But I, I definitely sympathize with these voters who are flocking towards the the Brexit party, right? I believe yeah. they're the I would say one popular of the, party the things my right uh, boss, Rich Lowry, has said a few times is this idea that uh, uh, if the center right does not address an issue like immigration, then the far right will. Um, right. People, you know, people will gravitate towards whichever party is talking about what's on their mind. And one of the great dangers is you create a kind of, you know, um, political elite consensus in which certain topics are simply not supposed to be talked about, uh, that they're considered, you know, verboten and, and you know, no pun intended. Um, and that you, you simply can't talk about these things. Um, I, I have a little bit more sympathy towards Theresa May than some of my colleagues. Uh, John O'Sullivan has been particularly, uh, uh, strong in his criticism of her. Um, I think she was put in a nearly impossible position, uh, because the irony is, is there's a good chunk of the British Conservative Party, uh, their right of center party, that didn't really want to go through with Brexit, but basically felt like they had to pose that way in order to win votes. Uh, David Cameron was probably the best example of that. And David Cameron, you know, pledged, we're going to we're going to do this referendum. We're going to do this referendum. But, yeah. He pretty openly had said that he didn't actually believe that they should leave the European Union. They went and did it. It passed. Now, admittedly, it passed rather narrowly, you know, 52-48. And then he said, you know what, Uh, you know, this this should be enacted by somebody who actually believes in it, which I thought was one of the more uh, decent and honorable moves I've seen in politics in a while. Oh, I remember. Um, I remember thinking, can yeah. you imagine a leader doing that in the United States when when David Cameron stepped down? I thought that was a very right. I mean, you know, the, the country wants to do. to do X. I don't believe in doing X. Therefore, someone else should take my position. Uh, um, you know, maybe again, now again, maybe he was ready for. He felt like he had done what he wanted to do in, as prime minister. But uh, I mean, I, I, Theresa May was put in an impossible situation. Um, their part, the votes in Parliament, you know, were, were because you have this weird coalition, was weren't really there for any particular plan of how to go forward with Brexit. Um, and so you'd see, I, I don't know about you, Brady, I saw that they had the Twitter headline, you know, Brexit faces key vote in parliament or Brexit chaos after key vote in parliament fails. It <laughs> felt like an evergreen tweet because right. we've seen it over and over again for the last couple of years. And there's a general sense of, okay, we're, we're fed up with the EU. We don't like the idea that we can't we can decide our own policies. We want our sovereignty back, but the actual way of implementing it and everything from like, you know, border, remember, you know. Um, the, the, you know, my, somewhere Michael Brendan Doherty is going to get ready to yell at me. Uh, the, the Isle of Ireland is divided into Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK. And then the rest of it is the Republic of Ireland. So this is something where you're right now, you've got effectively open borders, uh, and you can drive back and forth with trucks and all that kind of stuff. And it's a fairly, you know, there's a possibility you'd have to actually have a much more secure and just treat those border transports differently because now one part of the country is in the well, one, you know, one country's in the EU and the other one isn't. Um, lots of little details about how all this stuff was going to be reset. And, uh, you know, they're finding it much more complicated to actually enact than done. Uh, what I almost wish for, there's two things that have been frustrating me about this whole process. And again, I'm an American, not my call. You guys have to decide it for yourselves. One is that if I'm in charge of the European Union and somebody surprises me by voting to leave, my first thought would be, okay, why is this not working out for you? Why are you frustrated? Let's Let's talk about our problems and what would it take to get you to stay? Right, what, what ground? If I give you X, will you give a little bit on Y? And can we work out something where you don't want to leave? So the first question would be, and my sense is that the EU has done none of that. And in fact, their attitude has been about, how dare you want to leave? We will try to do everything we can to make this process as painful as possible for you. You know, I mean, when countries voted to get into the, the EU, did they know that this was this was a Roche motel? You could check in. Is a Hotel California? You can check in, but you right. could never leave. Um, uh, so there's that issue. And then the second thing is, uh, 
um, I'd almost want to enact, you, you almost want to give the UK the option of like a five-year window of let's try life outside the EU and let's see what it does. Now, people said the moment the vote came down, it was going to be economic ruin for the United Kingdom and everything. And that really hasn't come to pass. In fact, they're doing really fairly well. The unemployment's shrinking. Um, so it hasn't been an economic disaster, but maybe people after five years would say, hey, you know what? We had a better deal uh, under the old way. We, we like the shorter passport lines. We like it easier being able to move from country to country if we want to work. Um, you know, maybe they'd miss it. And so you just give it as, give them some sort of five year, uh, play, you know, option window to say, let's try life outside of the EU, see how it works. If we like it, we stay outside. If we, you know, if we don't like it, we can begin the process of reapplication. And if people felt like, uh, the EU was a little more flexible that way, maybe people would feel less, um, uh, less angry about it. And it would be less of a, a flashpoint for political division. See, Jim, that, that seems completely reasonable, which is why you're not a politician. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that, that yeah. makes perfect sense to me. It seems like a very, very easy way to go. Um, it, look, most of what I've contributed to this conversation has been a giant disclaimer on how little I know about uh, UK and European politics. But the, the one thing I do know is that any time a prime minister of, of England... Uh, whether it's David Cameron and now Theresa May steps down, I get a little nervous because of who is the leader of the Labor Party, mm. uh, and that is Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> um, I I do know enough to know this. Hashtag never Corbyn, right? I, as yeah. long as an anti-Semitic communist is not prime minister of one of our closest allies, I don't care who their their prime minister is, as long as it's not this guy. He, and he really is a communist. He's a uh, yeah, he, and you know, he's a like, pro-Soviet, pro, you know, mm-hmm. he's a terrorist sympathizer. I mean, this man is is vile. Yeah, and it's kind of striking how you know, there's some, oh, people say oh, he's kind of like the Bernie Sanders of you. Nah, that that really doesn't do it justice. And he makes Bernie not, seem like Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> I mean, he yes, a, this all you know, Bernie, Bernie Sanders is a teddy bear compared to this guy. Uh, I mean, Corbyn really has no problem hanging around with. Um, just just some of the most vile people uh, who go on to say these things. And he's the most vehement. Like the, the fascinating thing is that he'll he'll go on these tirades and, and then he'll say, oh, but there's nothing anti-Semitic. I, I, I totally oppose anti-Semitism or things like that. Um, now, it's worth knowing. The change in, in the conservative leadership does not guarantee that there's going to be a, change, a, a general election that would lead to labor getting a majority. Um, it is worth noting that both, just as I mentioned earlier, the conservatives have their own internal divisions about whether they really want to go through with Brexit. Uh, the Labour Party is not uh, all that unified. I think I think what's a little dis- troubling though is that there was a time where um, you know maybe you liked Tony Blair, maybe you didn't. Maybe you liked Gordon Brown, maybe you didn't. But there was no, there was nothing anti-American about them. There was nothing. You know, they were men of the left generally, but they were not. Um, uh, they believed in the U.S.-U.K. relationship, and they were not looking to. There were no red flags. They were not huge fans of the Soviet Union. Things like that. Corbyn is just a completely different breed. Uh, it's a little bit frightening to watch the Labour Party take this veer far to the left like this. Um, you know, maybe just a reflection of, of you know radicalism all around the globe, kind of you know finding fertile soil. And, and uh, you know, I, I almost wonder if this is like all delayed reaction to the Great Recession. Um, you might have think that with you know the unemployment rate shrinking and generally most company countries doing a little a little bit better, this would have shaken out of people's system. But I think there's a real sense of betrayal, uh, a real sense that uh, people in charge of big companies may or may not really be on our side, the the resentment of the Davos elites, so to speak. Um, and as you said, again, these are not, the, this has never been my first choice uh, uh, in, in the political spectrum, 
But there is some anger at a kind of a, a comfortable elite that have kind of, you know, botched it and dropped the ball a bunch of times. And, and really, this has not been a golden era for accountability in any of right. this stuff. And I suspect that's what's driving a lot of this. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, we've talked, uh, I have on this show, and, and most of us podcasters have, have drawn this this comparison uh, and called it the, the Corbinization, if you will, of the Democratic Party here in the United mm. States, you know, with their embrace of, of people like uh, of Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others, the socialist wing of the Democratic Party. And uh, I think this is going to cause serious issues for the Democrats. Uh, I think it's really going to come to a head at some point in the next couple of years. And I want your opinion on a theory that I've kind of formulated over the last couple of weeks on the show. Uh, and this is going back to, uh, I believe they were a, it was a Quinnipiac poll coming out of South Carolina a couple of weeks ago, I believe two weeks ago, um, that showed Joe Biden way ahead, which Joe Biden's way ahead in every state and every poll, state polls and national polls right now. Um, but the interesting data that jumped out at me was that Joe Biden had almost the entirety of the, of the minority vote in South Carolina. And obviously South Carolina is one of the most important primary states. It's the third state to vote in the primaries. Um, and it showed guys like Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg, uh, very far left socialist types with almost zero. And in Pete Buttigieg's case, he was, he was in second place in this poll among white voters and he was polling at 0% among minority voters. And, and the entire minority vote was going to Biden. And I think, Democrats have a serious problem because they're simultaneously trying to be the party of socialism and they're trying to pander mm -hmm. to the 19-year-old upper-middle-class white college kids. And they're also, as they always do, trying to pander to the minority vote as well, trying to rebuild the Obama coalition. And my theory is this, Jim. I, I've never seen a black guy wearing a Shea Guevara t-shirt. <laughs> I just haven't seen it. <laughs> that, that guy exists mm. somewhere, at least theoretically. He's, maybe he's out there. And I live in Toledo, Ohio. Toledo, Ohio is basically split 50-50 white and black. So I've seen a lot, I see a lot of black guys walking around on a daily basis. Never once have I seen them with a hammer and sickle pin on their coat, right? That is reserved for the young, college kid, coastal elite white kids. You know, you know what I mean? So and pandering to these two drastically different groups, I think, is going to become a problem. Like Hispanics, for instance. Hispanics are predominantly Catholic and predominantly mm -hmm. pro-life. You know, the black culture in America is, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a rap video, Jim, but it's its just a three-minute advertisement for American capitalism, right? So yeah. I just think... It, oh, and the Second it, Amendment. And, yes. and, the, and the Second <laughs> yeah. Amendment, right. So I just, I think they're going to run into some serious problems because they think they can be the party of, of Marxism and the party of, immig not immigrants, of minorities. And I, I don't think that works. Like, I don't think those two groups, that doesn't make sense. It's not like a coherent thing to do. You cannot have it both ways. And I think that's going to present some serious problems going forward. Yeah. I, you know, and every, you know, political party is, is made up of a kind of a coalition of different factions that might have different issues that are their primary motivators. But uh, in the case of the Democrats, it really is glaring. And I think the, the you know, when, when Biden officially announced and he's, you know, he was always the quasi front runner. Uh, it was usually he and, and Bernie and then the bunch uh, a little bit you know, well behind. Uh, Biden announces and he just takes off like a rocket. Now, maybe this is going to fade after a while. I notice I, I look the next big measuring stick is going to be when the debates come out. And uh, if I'm Biden, you know, you like where you are. Um, my, my, my sense is that right now a whole bunch of people and my guess is probably a good chunk of African-Americans as well are effectively parking their votes in Biden uh, and they'll keep them there as long long as they don't see any reason to to veer off or try somebody else. Now, look, you put Biden in front of a TV audience, 
Uh, you're starting to see a little bit of coverage, people noticing. Biden's mostly doing, you know, when he does speeches, he'll either do one or two organized prepared speech uh, and rallies and things like that. He'll do speaking at, at, you know, for a short period of time at fundraisers at people's houses. You're not seeing Joe Biden do a lot of sit-down interviews. You're not seeing him do the Sunday morning shows. You're not seeing him go get get subject himself to the hard questions. Um, and that might be just a matter of, hey, you know what? Um, we're we're ahead at this point. We're we like where we are. This is we're going to play the you know the equivalent of ball control offense. You know, three yards in a cloud of dust. We don't want to take any big risks. Or it might be, look, I, when I saw his debut, his announcement video, and then his "sorry, I touched you in the wrong places" type video, Brady. Real bad. He, he looks old, you know. He does. No, I don't mean like you know, like, ah, you know. I mean, he, he's older than Trump, and it's I, you kind of wonder. You put this guy under the spotlight. Uh, I, I also think in his his when he goes off the cuff when he said recently China's no threat to us. Um, this idea, like that's a tough message to sell. <laughs> that's a tough message to sell militarily, economically. Um, everything we're hearing about the the uh, the Huawei, the, the the Chinese phone company. Uh, you know, and I don't know whether this is just him speaking off the cuff and not thinking this thing through. Uh, um, but that's one of the areas where I think it was Tim Ryan, the Democratic congressman from Ohio and one of the 394 Democrats running for president um, who said that, you know, no, no, that's not the message it's going to sell in Ohio. The, 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 the white working class, blue collar voters in Ohio and Pennsylvania and that upper Midwest area, they still very much feel threatened by by uh, by China, by Chinese these imports. They still are, of all the things Trumps are doing, they love the tariffs. Now, maybe they're being hurt by them or the farmers are being hurt by them. But, right. uh, you know, there's, in other words, like, so Biden, we don't, we haven't seen Biden really tested and, you know, under the hot lights in a while. And my sneaking suspicion is that he may not, uh, you know, hold up under that pressure. Um, but if he does, then I suspect a lot of Democrats who feel, they see he's a known quantity. They know what they're getting. They're getting funny faces at the State of the Union. <laughs> you know, right. he's Obama's wingman. Uh, you know, he's, again, he's been in politics forever. Um, and most Democrats, I suspect just want the Trump presidency to end. Um, so if, you know, they'll, they'll, the all this stuff about, oh, busing in the seventies, I don't think any of that stuff's really going to hurt him. You know, there's, there's the debate about Twitter Democrats and then off Twitter Democrats, off Twitter Democrats don't give a hoot about any of this, this stuff. Uh, Twitter Democrats are the kind who, you know, fall madly in love with Pete Buttigieg. Uh, my suspicion is because he either reminds them of themselves, um, or he, uh, uh, is is more or less the life they aspire to have. Uh, Harvard, uh, Oxford, McKinsey, you know, top of the class, student council, body president, you know. I keep telling people, Pete Buttigieg is the kid your parents said you should act more like when you were growing up. Right, right. Yeah, the insufferable Eddie Haskell type. Right, right. And and Biden is is trying to run the, you know, the, the Warren G. Harding return to normalcy uh, kind of mm-hmm. campaign. And, and yeah, and going back to that rant he had about China, not only was that point ridiculous and... and not not factual by any stretch of the imagination, but he also got he was stammering. He got confused. He started talking mm. about oceans and mountains and in the east or the west or whatever, you know, and he was speaking too long. It was very strange. And obviously, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not playing armchair doctor or anything. I'm not diagnosing Joe Biden with anything, but he, he's lost a little bit of his fastball, certainly. Like he doesn't sound yeah, or, and, and, or look yeah. like the, the vice president from a few years ago. Yeah, and it's worth noting. I mean, this people dispute how much the issue was legit against Hillary Clinton, but let's observe: running for president is exhausting, right? It, it is a relentless schedule. Everything you say is under the microscope. Um, you, you you know, going off script and and speaking off the cuff, you can you can find yourself in trouble with with you know that. Um, you never know what the news environment's going to have. You're expected to have good answers for every question that comes your way. 
you know, at some point you're going to make excuses and it's going to wear on you. And, you know, the insistence that Hillary Clinton is fine. Hillary Clinton is fine. She had her coughing issues. She had her various times where she didn't look like she was doing well. And then she had that God awful event that got you turned out. Okay. But you know, that the event right. in, at uh, the nine 11 ceremony, you know, like this, you know, when after two weeks of insisting, no, don't worry, Hillary's fine. And all of a sudden she's, you know, like, I mean, you want to talk about bad symbolism and metaphors collapsing at a 9-11 ceremony, you know, on, ca- on camera, the, I mean, the, the world side. Yeah. I mean, like that, that's that, that I, I don't know if they, people say, oh, that's what made the difference. I don't know if that made the difference in the election, but um, the possibility of, of Joe Biden or any other candidate, you know, Bernie Sanders is going to be 79 on election on, on inauguration day, uh, you know, the, 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 I, you know, speaking as a guy who's, <clears throat> Uh, approaching middle age or in middle age, depending on your measuring stick, I would not mind some younger options. Uh, but it looks like the odds are very likely we'll get a seventy-something guy up against another seventy-something guy um, in in twenty twenty, and you know maybe uh, maybe Howard Schultz will be there for the youth vote in his you know in his sixties. The party of old white men, you know who who would have thought? There you go, exactly. In, yeah, take twenty nineteen. <laughs> so. Jim, uh, Between Two Scorpions is your new book out June 11th. It is available for pre-order right now on Amazon. Uh, tell us about the book, man. Sure. Uh, I've had this kind of in the back of my mind for a lot of years. Uh, Cam, my best friend Cam Edwards and I wrote uh, Heavy Lifting, which was a nonfiction book about the joys of getting married, parenthood, and, and adult responsibilities. And after I finished that, I was like, okay, I had this idea for a novel for a while. Uh, um, I want to get it out of me. I want to. I want to put it down on paper. And that was you know, 2015, 2016. Uh, you may have noticed it's it's you know May 2019. So this has been in the works for for quite a while. Um, always enjoyed thrillers. Uh, everything from Tom Clancy, you know, way back when in the 80s, uh, to Brad Thor today, and uh, you know Matthew Bentley, and uh, all these guys. Um, and you really just kind of in, you know my attitude was like you can have you can talk about almost anything in a thriller, and it suddenly becomes fun and it suddenly becomes interesting. Um, and so you can, you can cover a lot of territory and it doesn't have to be, uh, feel like a lecture or, or anything like that. And so I, I kind of, you know, it's a, uh, about a small team of CIA operatives. Um, and they're kind of the, the, off the books, not quite the bad news bears, but certainly kind of unorthodox in their mentality. Uh, I kind of went for the dynamic of the team of Firefly, um, kind of the, you know, mission impossible alias, you know, the idea you have a team and everybody's got their specialty and they all kind of rib each other and tease each other. Um, and for the plot, um, and I've gotten some very nice uh, feedback and people very impressed with this part. Um, you know, Brady, we, we've, you know, we've suffered some god awful terrorist attacks in, in our lifetimes, but by and large, we've actually lucked out in the sense that Al Qaeda or ISIS or groups like this don't really understand American culture. Right. Um, I think Al Qaeda believe that if they knock down the twin towers, the American economy would, would completely collapse. Right, um, right. we, you know, we went through rough stretches or a rough patch there, but it did not, you know, so I started Think about if a terrorist group really understood America, if a terrorist group really thought about what makes us think, what makes us tick, what motivates us, um, and then very much in this moment, the book is taking place, let's say, in the you know not-too-distant future, um, in our current era of social divisions, political divisions, cultural divisions, um, what would happen if a nefarious terrorist group tried to get Americans angry at each other when we already are pretty darn angry at each other? Um, <laughs> And, and there's the premise. And, it, you know, some people said, it, you, know, it, you know, it's ISIS recruits incels, which is kind of an element of it. Um, I just threw everything into this group that frightens me uh, about the state of our country at this moment. Um, and just let them say, all right, what would happen if somebody started doing these things? And they didn't have to have nuclear bombs. They didn't have to have, you know, chemical or biological or anything like that. But they just had 
groups of people who are full of anger and easy to motivate. And what could they do? Um, so that's kind of the, that's the danger out there. Um, and you know, again, it's a thriller. Chills, spills, thrills. Uh, you know, twenty four style. Got to hunt down the guys. Uh, chases, gunfights, uh, femme fatales. Uh, you know it. So it's you know, it's mostly and primarily for fun it's got you know it's written by me uh, i didn't set it out to make it a political story but uh <laughs> i think if you've been reading if you re- if you've been reading me for a long time you'll see large chunks of myself in it and um if you listen to me on uh, my friend cam edwards program on on nra tv you may recognize one of the characters as having uh, certain familiar traits so wh- one question about you you know your you know, I, wow, it sounds super nerdy, but you know the whole process of writing this book, mm. uh, your process, if you will, Jim. Now, but um, obviously, you and I are both engulfed in in the world of politics, and we work in politics. You write your your daily column, the, the Morning mm-hmm. Jolt, which is great. And you know, and I'm a I'm a songwriter. I'm a, the singer in a band. And and you know, when I'm writing a new album, when I'm writing new stuff, I it is hard. I, I find it hard sometimes to flip that switch. Uh, and especially if I'm writing a song that is essentially fiction, it's not like, you know, about my own life or something like that. Uh, It is Mm kind of hard, like covering politics all day, flipping that switch and writing music. So when you're working on a piece of fiction, do you ever struggle to flip that switch to get yourself in like that completely, you know, pull that 180 that's required to move out of Mm -hmm. politics and into the world of fiction? Uh, I have a couple of different kind of methods that go into this. One of the things I started out with was, um, wanting to make the, the the settings of the story the most exotic and bizarre and unique that I could think of, um, so that I could find on the map. And so this is where you know sites like Atlas Obscura come in very handy. Um, so I, you know, they, for example, one example I just put up a, a item on it about Twitter earlier today. Um, so there's an island off the coast of Brazil. It's nicknamed Snake Island, uh, and it is home to more snakes than. Any other uh, island on the than any other spot in the face more snakes per square meter than any other spot on the face of the earth. And oh, by the way, one of the native snakes is apparently the single deadliest thing, uh, snake venom on on the entire planet. Um, so with that, I'm like, okay, I hear about that. I'm like, okay, I need to have something take place there. So what kind of what kind of MacGuffin are they going to need there? What kind of you know what's what's going to bring my team there? What you know you already know the threat. You already know that the moment you step on this island, you know there's a danger of your characters getting bitten by a snake and dying quickly and painfully. You know um, that's a great dramatic situation. That I mean, as soon as I hear about that, and that feels very far. That, that's a dramatic situation that's very very far from the issues of the world uh, of things like that. Um, so there's 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 I, I kind of will start with stuff like that. I'll think about um, you know what do I want this scene to showcase about the characters i want to showcase that this character is you know uh brave but maybe a little foolhardy i want to show that this character's got you know maybe a little bit more common sense and and you know looks before she leaps um and you know kind of that uh you know that's kind of the, the dynamic there and honestly i find that a huge and wonderful escape from uh uh the world of, of modern politics yeah so you know uh settings are fun thinking about the characters are fun um i guess the other thing is that you know sometimes you will in, in journalism, you know, a politician will say something that's false. You, you write the column saying, well, actually, no, it, it's not two plus two equals five. Two plus two equals four. Here's all the evidence that two plus two equals four. You put it out there. It's a great column. People respond positively. And the next day, that politician will go out and say two plus two equals five again, you know. Um, so it, it's kind of much more satisfying to write a story in which you know, they shoot the terrorist and the terrorist stays dead. <laughs> you know, right. Right. There's a certain sense of satisfaction of how the problems get solved in these kinds of stories. Uh, you know, as I was <laughs> as I was getting ready for this podcast, I'd realized 
and I'm 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 ashamed to admit this. I realized I have not read any fiction in 2019 yet, and it, it's almost June. So we're talking at least you're getting into less, peach season. Right, Don't worry. Like, you know, it's, 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 now, now it's a time of year you can uh, enjoy it. <laughs> and, and you know, I've it, it's funny. Like I've read hardly any fiction the last couple years, and I'm kind of ashamed of that. Like that's not good. But, you know, I, I notice sometimes in the middle of the night when I'm watching Netflix, I'm watching some documentary. For goodness sakes, you know what I mean. And I, uh, I had a conversation with a buddy of mine. I'm 30 years old, so and a, a friend of mine who's around my age too. And I feel like people in my generation don't read as much fiction. Even if you look at what TV shows they watch, they're not watching as much fiction. And I think that's kind of that's strange. And I think it maybe even contributes to, you know, kind of the anxiety that young people have <laughs> just around mm. the world of politics, around their, their worldview. They're, they're constantly engaged with the real world. They're constantly they're you know, they're reading the news 24 seven. And I think a, a little, a little bit of good fiction goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's worth noting, you know, why, what, you know, why do people tell stories? Why, why did the first, you know, myths and legends uh, come along uh, when people were, you know, just barely a birth of civilization? and tribes and it was you know one was to explain the world um but also these stories were very much about you know celebrating virtues things that you wanted to instill in them Uh, um now you could say okay that's a long time ago and we're not reading about uh hercules and and the odyssey and and those kinds of stories today or maybe some people still are um but our our stories about heroes are still you know they, they may be more multifaceted and in fact the idea of when you have a flawed hero maybe it's a recognition that okay most of us aren't going to be perfect um most of us aren't going to be Superman or uh, King Leonidas, you know, the, the, you know, these, these, you know, this over larger than life, perfect characters. Maybe we're going to be flawed, right, right. but we can still be, do good. We can still make a difference in the world. We can still see that justice gets done. Um, and that's meant to inspire us. That's, but, you know, even if your job isn't to hunt down terrorists or to do something really dramatic and exciting, um, the attitude with which the characters pursue their job, their missions, you know, and then, um, there's always this, uh, this question, you know, the, the, the big question, I think a lot of, of, uh, particularly when you're writing in the thriller genre, that you have to address is why is your hero the one that you know? Why are your why does your protagonist the one who saves the day? Um, and maybe your character is a Navy SEAL, and they're the exact kind of person who you know you'd send in these kinds of high tense situations. But if not, what makes them the right person to take on this ch- challenge? Is it their their moral character? Is it their um, skills of observation? Is that their you know talents of deduction? What is it makes your character the one that's going going to be the one that saves the day out of all the other characters that are in this world you've created. And whatever that is, your story is ultimately, ultimately a celebration of that. Right. You're ultimately, your story is a, is a salute to that. And it's supposed to make the listener or reader or people say, hey, you know what? I want to be like that too. I'm going to try to develop that part of it. So that you read Sherlock Holmes, you're like, you know what? I'm going to try to be a good, you know, have great skills of observation and notice things that nobody else does and, you know, put together these great deductions and understand the world better on a, on a level that most people don't. And that. It's, uh, you know, and plus, you know, it's a lot of fun. It's a way to unplug from, as you said, this, you know, <laughs> often dark, depressing and, and extraordinarily frustrating world. So. Ab- absolutely. And that that's an extremely great way to put it. I, actually, that that really explains why uh, I believe that that really expertly explains why people hated the last episode of Game of Thrones. Were you a Game of Thrones <laughs> watcher, Jim? I, I, I was a casual fan. I was one of the ah, few okay. people who was actually, yeah, I guess I'm OK with that particular ending. But I realize I am there are people who have been, you know, so emotionally invested in this uh, that they just felt an enormous sense of betrayal by the way it ended. So I, I, I understand the complaints, but I, I think actually considering how my, my argument in favor of it would be that, like, look, that was about as close as they could get to a happy ending 
to a series that's an all about unhappy ending since the very first episode. But I, I think that what, what you said about explaining, you know, why the hero, why your hero is the hero. I think that's why mm. people didn't like that that ending. Because mm. It's like the the useless character. <laughs> yeah. with... Remember this kid who didn't do <laughs> yeah. anything? Yeah, he's, he's, he's the king. He's the one. <laughs> so Between Two Scorpions does not end like that. Correct? <laughs> it's safe, safe to say? <laughs> uh, no. And I guess, actually, you know, this is the first really good detailed interview I've gotten to do about the book. I'll, I'll give your listeners this special little hint. So I wanted to write a book that was so good people would read it twice. Uh, um, and so I have this this sequence of events. It is not um, – people people who read my reading, I'm, I'm not – I try not to be overtly religious or, or anything like that. And I don't also wouldn't put myself in that I'm spiritual but I'm not religious necessarily category. But I, I, there are a variety of characters. And some of the characters are very much uh, strongly Catholic, strongly Jewish. There are some characters who are very much atheist. There are a couple characters who are kind of in the middle. Um, and the last few pages, I don't skip ahead, <laughs> but the last <laughs> few pages are very much these characters grappling with everything that's happened and kind of a, you know, what did we learn, Charlie Brown sort of thing. And one of the characters makes the argument of, no, no, this, was, this wasn't just luck. This wasn't just us. This was God and the devil at, at work in our world. And the idea that he lists off all these things, and it's not quite the end of the usual suspects where you drop your coffee cup you see all these clues over there but this one <laughs> character has come up with this spiritual interpretation of things to so say actually no this is we're on the side of the angels literally and we are fighting people who are fighting their demons literally um and that's what they take away from it my hope is that people look at that wow wait a second this was a you know uh this is an argument about what's spiritually going on in the world and all that kind of stuff so um again yeah this is by no means a religious uh to, you know I, I, my friend Catherine lopez uh wonderful uh contributor and and our big big role in me coming to the National Review way back when, probably the most astute writer on Catholic issues that I know. I mean, when, when I when I keel over and go to St. Peter, I'm just going to mention that I know Catherine Lopez, uh, and I think that should get me in. <laughs> um, but uh, so she said she was going to get a copy. I'm like, you're going to love all these little allusions and references to spiritual life. You may not love all the shooting people in the head. That might not. Uh, <laughs> I, this is a weird genre mash, and I have no idea how people are going to respond to this. Hey, love it, man. I, ca I can't wait to read it. Um, like I said, I haven't read any fiction in six months, so I, I'm using your new book yeah, as an excuse. Great to hear that, Brady. Yeah, well, look, I, I'm using your book as an excuse to, uh, to you know, start reading more fiction, so th thank God uh, that it's coming out June 11th. Uh, before I let you go, one more time, where can everybody pre-order the book, sure. uh, which they must do sure. right now? This is on Amazon, uh, and it's being published by Amazon, which means that at least for a short period of time, it will only be published by Amazon. Uh, so if you you don't like buying things from Amazon, you, you might be in deep trouble. Uh, it is available both in ebook and paperback form. I just got a paperback version. It looks terrific, and I'm really pleased because apparently they don't always come out looking terrific. Um, with illustrations, I have a couple of graphics, things that I drew for this story and things like that. Um, yeah, so just type in Between Two Scorpions in Amazon or type in my name, Jim Garrity, last name spelled G-E-R-A-G-H-T-Y. Yes, I realize it's a mouthful, so it's probably easier to just type Between Two Scorpions. Uh, release date is June 11th it's available on kindle if you order it that day it will instantly download to your device and if you subscribe to their service kindle unlimited uh apparently you can get it for free uh and apparently i get like a half a cent for every page that you read so click how on all through those pages good for me. <laughs> yeah. everybody pre-order the new book between two scorpions right now on amazon uh follow jim on twitter at jim garrity check out nationalreview.com and every morning check out the morning jolt which is jim's column it's, it's very great if you only have one you only have time to read one column a day. Check out the Morning Jolt. It'll it'll 
you keep you up to date on what's going on in the world. Uh, thank you so much, Jim, for coming on. Hopefully we'll do it again soon. Um, I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks.